For those of you who don't know, I spent 15 days in India. I got back last Tuesday. I seem more confident about that now. Um, it was last Tuesday night. Uh, it's been a crazy few days in preparing. Um, and this will be somewhat of a sermon, somewhat of kind of a recap a report on the trip. Uh, there will be a blending of the two, uh, hopefully. Uh, and I, I, I'm praying that through it, uh, we'll all be edified um, as, a, as a church. Um, last Sunday, uh, around this time, several, uh, well, six, six of us got into a, uh, an SUV. I'm not sure what brand it was. It, it was an Indian brand. SUV, and it was six of us, three, two Americans, four Indians. We got into a van, and er, and we were going to go to see some tea plantations in, in the mountains of Kerala. And, I mean, it, it was beautiful when we finally got there. Uh, it was at the top of this mountain, uh, really this mountain range. And, and at the very top, it was just a whole bunch of tea. Uh, as everywhere you looked was just tea, except for where there were waterfalls and, and wildlife. There, literally, monkeys were jumping on our vehicle whenever we would stop to take pictures. Uh, it, was, it was crazy. Um, it was jungles and then mountains, and it was just so beautiful, and everything was so, so amazing. Uh, but before we even got there, uh, on the way, we stopped <clears throat> halfway up this mountain, and we stopped and determined that, that we were going to have church with this, this uh, body of believers that met in this very small orphanage uh, that, that, the, that our guides for, the, for that day uh, were partners with it. They, they were friends of and they knew. And so we stopped and we got out and we walked into this orphanage and, oh man, we walked into a room maybe the size of one of these rows. Um, and there uh, were a couple dozen people uh, in this room. There was no electricity. There were no uh, lights. Uh, obviously no electricity. There's there, there were no chairs, there was no uh, musical instruments of any kind. There was just the door, and there were a few open windows, and that's kind of how everything was moving in and out. And uh, we sat down there, and I don't know if it's just an Indian Christian custom, but if somebody mentions that your profession is pastor, you're going to preach. Um, whether you knew it or not, you were going to preach. Uh, they're going to make some special allowance in their service. Uh, they don't have a set service time, so that makes it very convenient. Uh, and then also, if you're American, you're going to preach. And, and so th- I, w- I was prepared for this at this point um, because I'd been referred to as Pastor Sean uh, enough times. I, I went intending to, to speak at a seminary, and to do two, three-hour sessions with the seminary, and then to visit orphanages. Um, but I ended up preaching like six or seven times um, just because they heard, oh, you're a pastor. Well, it's a prayer meeting, but why don't you preach for us? Um, and if you're going to preach for us, please don't preach less than 45 minutes. <laughs> okay, that's, that's cool. Um, you know, dig into the old archive there and, and kind of just go with it. In one sense, for a, a, a long-winded fellow like me, that's kind of a dream. Um, everywhere I preach here, they're like, you got 30 minutes, then start wrapping it up. Um, 
because the buffet is about to open. Um, or whatever reason, I shouldn't say that. That's, <laughs> that's terrible. Um, but we're sitting in this room uh, with these, these brothers and sisters in the Lord, and they're, they're all ages, and they're sitting on the ground. I mean, all ages. Uh, and, and so there are kids in there. there. There's a baby in there crying. There's an elderly folk in there. And we get in, in and we're, we're singing, and we're praying. And after some time, they, they asked me to speak, and I, I preached. And um, my kind of go-to sermon, if I didn't preach at the same place twice, uh, was uh, from Joshua 3. Uh, just uh, about the the crossing Joshua yeah three the crossing of the the Jordan River and uh and just that God is greater than God's and and we, you know we're sitting there in this room with a couple dozen people and I I, I find out later that that church was uh, two people a husband and a wife and four orphans less than a year. Uh, earlier, and that they they had been a part of a plant, uh, an orphanage plant that uh, with this organization that that we kind of uh, ran around with. Uh, that's how they work. They plant orphanages as well as churches, and that they were very close to the church that we went to the previous Sunday, which had maybe about fifty people, but had been planted within the last year and planted a church within a year. And as I'm sitting here thinking, doing kind of the math and the numbers, uh, that this church is is going to be um, probably around sixty to a hundred people within a year of its start, and it'll probably plant some churches. And, and I'm doing the math and thinking about this, and and. I'm asking, and I ask myself this question: <clears throat> What is it about the churches in India that causes them to grow like nuts and to plant like crazy? Um, and and that was kind of the question that ran through my head. And as I was kind of contemplating, as I was in vehicles and in 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 scripture and reading and thinking about these things, uh, the Lord scolded me. I mean, genuinely rebuked me. Um, that, that question is so full of empirical, Western ideology and belief that that I failed to see the beauty of what was happening in those churches uh, because what I was thinking was numbers and statistically I spiritualized it. They're growing, they're evangelizing, they're planting churches. These are spiritually good things. Um, but in the end, I was saying, I was asking, what is the formula that they're using? How is it, what is it about them? What is it that they're doing that makes them successful and somehow that uh, a church in America that has 45 people and has had 45 people for the last 10 years is not. And uh, the Lord really just worked on me with that. Uh, because I do think we ought to be growing. We ought to be evangelizing. Um, I, I do think we ought to be planting churches. Uh, but I, I do not think that, and, and, and we'll, we'll prove it, I, I do not think that that's the central aim of the church. And I had made it the central aim of the church. And so these churches in India were more successful, um, or they were doing church right, and I, and I needed to figure out what this magic formula was. Um, and, and as I, I, I read 
I, I read a couple books. Uh, I, I read Bonhoeffer. It's a biography on uh, a German theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who, who was executed for being a part of the resistance to Hitler and being part of a plot to assassinate Hitler. Uh, he realized what was going on with the Jews. He realized what the Third Reich was and, and that he was called to be uh, opposed to it in more than just words or in more than just thoughts. And he acted and he was martyred. Uh, for the for, really for the cause of the gospel, as you read through the the story, uh, and, and and as I'm reading all these things, one one thing that it struck me in the book and that struck me about the Indian believers was the reality that the central focus of of their their ministry was not making converts and it was not planting churches. It was it was worship. Um, and and it's really struck me over the last especially weak as I've been preparing for this, that, that, that's, that is what we are called to is worship. Uh, in, in, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper starts out by saying that missions is not the ultimate end. It's not the aim of the church. The ultimate goal of the church is worship and that missions happens because worship doesn't. Uh, and, and that can be said of every facet of the church. Discipleship is not the ultimate aim of the church. Worship is. Discipleship happens because worship doesn't. Preaching happens because worship doesn't. Evangelism, outreach, all of these things happen because worship doesn't. And we are called to be worshipers. We're created to be worshipers. And we're going to talk about that some. Um, and so as I, I sat there in, under the rebuke of, of the Lord, um, Especially because I was thinking about thinking that I was going to come back and you know tell the Americans this is how we do it you know uh, it's, it's really funny whenever you go to a developing nation and the gospel is exploding and you think oh these are the things that America does wrong somehow and you come back with full confidence that you can fix the church um, and thankfully the Lord rebuked me before I stood up here this morning um, and so we're going to talk about worship uh, it's very valuable uh, Brad. And I talked about what I ought to preach, and he said that he he's found it's good between series to do to to preach from the Psalms, and and I am so thankful that he did uh, because the Lord brought me to Psalm ninety five, and that's where we're gonna where we're gonna be for uh, this next however long. Um, and so if you would turn to Psalm one ninety five and stand with me as we read God's word. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is great. Uh, The Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture 
and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are people who go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let's pray. God, I pray that the words of my lips, the meditation of my heart would be acceptable to you. That as we look at your word, that it would look at us and judge us and test us. Be glorified this morning as we worship and as we learn to worship you. Amen. Oh, you can be seated. Uh, this psalm is probably used a lot to talk about worship. Uh, it, it, it's all about it. And, and we're going to look at this psalm and we're going to look at a few questions. We're going to answer some questions based on Psalm 95. And we're going to talk about and hopefully learn how to and what worship is. And that actually is the first question, is what is worship? Uh, in this psalm, what we see is a great call for the people of God to worship. Uh, but we, we, we also see what worship is. We're not just called to worship. We see what it is. Uh, we see what it looks like. Uh, we see what God has designed worship to be. And, and that's important because I think, I think we, 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 we've misused the word worship. Uh, we've used it uh, in, in its most narrow sense to talk about the music, um, and in its most, uh, in its broadest sense, to talk about what happens Sunday morning and occasionally each day. Uh, if you read your word on a daily basis and pray in the mornings or in the in the night, um, and and. That is, that, that's not exactly what's happening here. Uh, in this text, what we see is that worship is uh, ascribing to the Lord, is giving to the Lord, assigning to him the value that, that he deserves. Uh, what we see is that we're called to, to do certain things, and, and we'll look at that. We're called to sing to the Lord and make a joyful noise. We're called to worship and bow down, um, and, and, and in that is bowing down. Um, but what we see in verse 3 is that we do this because the Lord is a great God and King above all gods. Uh, he's the creator. He owns everything. He is of great value. He is of great worth, and he ought to be to his people. And as we learn these things, as we learn these secrets about that, that are not secrets at all about how great God is we ought to ascribe to him worth and value and live according to that value our lives ought to be shaped by the value of God 
We are called not just to sing. It's not just to be an emotional experience, but we're called to bow down. It's a physical experience. It's, 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 it's also a, a mental experience. We're called to consider and remember. Uh, all of these things fuel our worship. All of these things go into assigning God the value uh, that he deserves. And, and when we do that, we begin to live differently. And so here's the thing, is if in your music and in the books that you read, uh, you assign great value to God, you sing that there's no God like our God, uh, you sing that Jesus, you're all to us, and you go home and you do not live uh, a life that is shaped by and changed by the reality that Jesus is a great God above all gods and that he is indeed all to us, then you are not worshiping. You're not worshiping then, and you're also not worshiping now. Not at least in accordance with the scriptures. And so as we find this great value, that, 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 this great worth uh, that, that God is, our lives ought to be changed. And, and the best example that I can think of... Um, Maybe it's not the best, but it's the best one that I did think of, um, is, is to think about being a child. Uh, and, and when you were a child, you would go and visit your grandma. Um, and when you'd visit your grandma, you'd go into their house, and, and, and it was a big house, and, and you'd go upstairs, and in, in one of the rooms upstairs, there were a bunch of toys, and there were um, a bunch... <clears throat> of just little trinkets that she'd kind of always had, and, and you and your cousins or you and your siblings or whoever would go, and, and you would play with these toys. And uh, one of the toys was a, a cash register, a toy cash register. And so you'd play, uh, you'd play marketplace or you'd play, you know, grocery shopping. I don't know. You're a kid. This is... This is what you do. You just make up games. And so you go and you find in this, this house there's this jar and it's got all of these coins and, you know, they all look different and, and it doesn't, you know, doesn't really matter. You guys just take them and you play. And so everybody has money and, and as you're playing this game, one person is the clerk and you go and you buy your food and give the money and they give you the change. And this is the type of game that my cousins and I would play. I don't know if anybody still does or if we were the only ones who would play grocery shopping. Weird, I know, but it's what we did. Um, And so imagine that you play this game as a kid and and it marks your childhood. It's one of those things you just remember. Um, And some years later, you're, you're an adult now. Your grandmother passes away. And she leaves to you, to you, uh, this house and, and all the contents that are in it. And, and like I think most humans would, you go to the house and immediately as you open the front door, you're flooded with memories. You're flooded with memories of being a little kid and your cousins and you running and that time that you thought it'd be a good idea to get on the mattress and slide down the stairs. And the only problem was that at the end of the stairs, there was a little awning and a wall. So everybody flew into the wall and you laugh about that. And then you go up the stairs and you look and and the scents are still there. and, And you remember, you can almost see your grandma. You can see these memories and you walk into this room and there it is, all the toys still there. And oh my goodness, this is amazing. 
It's just, just, you know, remember we used to come here. You, you might even be telling it to your children. You know, we used to come here and we used to play this grocery game. They're like, groceries? And you're like, yeah. You know, we'd buy bananas and we'd get changed. It was so fun. And they're like, okay, Dad. Uh, you know, and, and lo- you look and there it is and there's that jar. And you get the jar and you open it. And all you remember was that there were a lot of different types of coins in there. But you look and you, you pick up a coin and... Oh, it's a, a wheat back penny. That's that's cool. And you pour out the coins and you're just looking at them, remembering. And there's one coin in there that looks different from every other coin. And you look and it's got two eagles on it. And you're like, well, that's weird. I've not seen a coin like that. You know, I don't know what it is. It was just a toy. But you want to know just, you know, what, what coin is this? And so you decide I'm going to go to uh, a shop and just see what is this, what you know, where did it come from? So you go to this this man who collects antiquities, valuable coins, whatever. And you walk in and you've got your little coin that you played with as a child. And as you look through, you see, oh, that coin's worth $10,000. <laughs> That's really silly. Why would a coin be worth $10,000? And you're looking around and then there's also the collection of president's coins, you know, all the, the presidential quarters. And so, uh, you know, that that's really not worth much at all and and you don't expect you just want to know a little piece of your history and the owner comes in and he doesn't really pay you much money you say look I have this coin um can you tell me what it is and he takes it and he looks and his countenance changes and he, he looks at the coin and he looks at you and he says where did you get this coin um and you say well my grandma died and she left me her house and I found this coin I used to play with it as a kid um you know, we chuck it around, whatever, it didn't matter. And that's where I found it. And he looks at it and he says, uh, you know, it's a 1933 gold double eagle coin. You're like, okay, cool. Well, that's what I was wanting to know. Why do you seem so anxious? And he says to you and that the coin is worth... million (laughs) dollars. They are. Uh, He explains to you that in 1933, they printed about 500,000 of these coins. And in the war effort, they had to melt a lot of them down for supplies for the troops. And they were sent off. And less than a handful are in existence. And so this coin you have is worth over $7 million. And all of a sudden... You look at that coin differently than you do. All of a sudden, you know, you hand it to the guy and, and he looks at the coin differently. He looks at it, he sees what it is, and all of a sudden he went from this guy who's thinking, oh, here we go, another 1983 quarter, you know, to this is worth all the coins in my shop combined. And he handles it differently. He says, here, from now on, put this in this bag. That way the oils from your hands don't mess up this this coin. You take it back. It doesn't go back in the jar with the 1973 pennies. You know, it goes, if you're not going to sell it, it's an heirloom. It's invaluable uh, for, for, it's priceless for for so many reasons. Um, And all of a sudden, your attitude and your life changes as proper value and proper worth has been assigned to this coin. 
Um, and that, that's the best... Uh, it's the best description, that's the best analogy I can give um, because that word worship, literally, it came from an old English word that was worship. It was literally understanding something's worth and living in light of it. And so no longer do you throw this penny uh, when you're done playing with it back in the jar with the other pennies. It's not something that shapes your life for five or ten minutes with your friends and then is not thought of for the rest of the day, week, year, decades that pass. It's valuable, and it's of intense worth, and it's worship. It's, it's finding out more and more the value of God, the innumerable, measurable price the worth of God, ascribing it to him and living according to that. And that's what the psalmist is calling us to do. That's what worship is. And so the, que- the, the second question, the second thing that this psalmist addresses is why we should worship then God. Why should we worship Yahweh, to be specific? The psalmist is not writing in 21st century America where uh, pagan worship has already been ridiculed for some time and Christian religion and spirituality is beginning to uh, be ridiculed and, and, and we live in a society that is, that is post-idol and at least post-graven image and, and post-spiritual, uh, uh, superstitious God. Uh, he's writing in a culture that, quite frankly, is a lot more like India. Um, and when I was in India, I spent some time in Kerala, very beautiful, very beautiful. And then I spent some time in a, another state called Tamil Nadu, equally as beautiful. Uh, the, the word, the name Tamil Nadu means the land of temples. And it's true. It's true. We'd walk around from town to town and, and there wouldn't be always massive temples. But what I found really interesting is there'd be like these little mini temples. Uh, they were not very big. They were the size maybe of a closet, a large closet, but they were very tall. Um, and ornate, and in, inside there would be Krishna or uh, whatever god that, that was to be worshipped at the time, and on the outside there would be uh, an altar of sorts and a little offering bucket where you could put some money. Um, and you'd walk through town and you'd see oh, all of these, all of these uh, buildings, and then also you would walk around and there'd be another building just like that. It was a closet and you'd look and you're like, wait a second, that does not look like a Hindu God. And you get closer and you look inside and it's the sacred heart, Jesus, being held by the Blessed Virgin. Um, and it's this little mini temple for Jesus, uh, for the Catholics and for some Protestants even, they, they did this uh, And I was struck by this, that you could just casually kind of walk up, throw a coin in there, and go about your business. Um, I, I imagine that there were some people who were thinking, 
I don't know which of these is right. So I better go ahead and <laughs> I'll drop a coin in each one and whichever one's right, he'll be, he'll be happy with that and, and I'll be good to go. And uh, the reality is that Jesus is not one of the gods. He's not one among many gods. Uh, Jesus, Yahweh, Yahweh is the God above all gods. And in verse 3, we see that's why we should worship him. Uh, It's very much, there is a do this, and then why should we do this? Verse 1, come, let us do this. Verse 3, 4, for the Lord is a great God. Verse uh, 6, oh come, let us worship. Verse 7, for. And so the first reason we see in verse 3 is we're to worship for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, above all of them. And I sat there looking at this, and I was kind of like, this, is, this just isn't what, they, what we've done. What this, what, what, what's happening here with these many temples is that we've just made Jesus Christ one of the many gods in the marketplace of gods that, that you can choose. Today, I'll worship Shiva. Tomorrow, I'll worship Jesus. I begin to think about our lives, my life. And yeah, you know, we've, we've, in all of our technology, we've progressed beyond many temples, uh, except that we really just haven't. Uh, we live our lives as though Jesus is one of the many gods. And on Sunday, we pay homage to that God. And on Monday, we pay homage uh, to money. Sunday afternoon, right after we pay homage to Jesus, we pay homage to the great God that is our stomachs. And sometimes we worship more heartily and we give more monetarily to that God than to Jesus. And sometimes we go home and, and we worship the God that is our family. Throughout the whole trip, I've never been more homesick on a trip than this one. Never. And there was a point at the end of the trip where I was in Kerala. I was supposed to go to Cochin, to the airport, to fly to Bombay so that I could leave. It was the day of the beginning of 48 hours of solid traveling. And it was 8 in the morning, and I was supposed to leave at 11 and we found out that my flight was canceled. Got all day. My connecting flight in Bombay is 1 o'clock in the morning. It's fine. We call. We say, look, we heard our flight was canceled. Should have known. We were flying on SpiceJet. It was less than 100. It's called SpiceJet. Okay? <laughs> like, I was, I was upset, but I was not surprised. Um, you know, it was, it was less than $100 of, of, to fly. And, you know, we call, hey, you canceled my flight. That's not a great thing because I really do need to get home. Um, and I'm just really frustrated. And they said, okay, we'll put you on the next flight. And, you know, again, just I'm really getting irritated. It's been a long trip. I'm ready to see my kids and my wife. I'm ready to be back home. Uh, I'm, I'm ready for a lot of things. And 
you know, this is just being delayed now. I'm going to have to rush a little bit more. And uh, so <clears throat> on top of that, the, the Indian, uh, a, guy, a guy named JP, who was with us translating for us the whole trip, his father uh, got really sick. They think it was a heart attack. He didn't know. He was really worried, nervous. He had to leave. And so he and Andy, uh, who was the other American that went with me, uh, they left and they went back to Tamil Nadu. And it was me and um, nobody who spoke English, really. They spoke well enough to say like airport and yeah. Um, But that's not very assuring to ask a question and you know, are we get, how long does it take to get there? Airport, yeah. Okay, okay, good. This is going to be awesome. And so I'm, I'm really starting to stress. And they're like, you know, basically there was a prayer meeting going on. They were fasting. Churches, they're fast like crazy. I, I mean... It's not crazy. I think we're crazy for not fasting with the same urgency and with the same frequency that they fast. But, I mean, it was at least once a week they're fasting for at least a day. Um, and sometimes seven days at a time they're fasting. Uh, I think they do it a little differently than us so they can sustain such long fasts. But, nonetheless, uh, we, we don't consider fasting um, in as high regard as they do or as I even think Jesus in Scripture does for the most part. Um, <clears throat> that's an aside, uh, but we, you know, I found out that they were having their fast breaking prayer meeting. And so I went to this prayer meeting. And of course, if you recall, uh, I'm a pastor, therefore I must preach. And so I, I ended up preaching and I preached on Joshua and, um, af- and the whole time, the whole time they're singing and praying, you know, I'm, it's easier because I don't understand anything really that's happening. And so it's easier for me to just kind of be clapping and thinking like, I really hope that this all works out because I am really wanting to get home. And I'm really upset, but I'm just clapping and smiling. And when everybody closes their eyes, I assume they're praying. So I close my eyes and kind of peek so that I know when to open my eyes. I don't look ridiculous, you know, kneeling when everybody's done. And and I go through all this, and I say what I've said, and it's the sixth time that I've said it, and I'm just thinking, I've got to get home. And afterwards, you know, the, the one guy comes up, and it turns out that there are a couple people who speak English because they help translate out of the, you know, blue. And then afterwards, uh, the, the, the guy who's leading it, you know, said some things, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da, Pastor Sean, da-da-da-da-da-da, okay, he's talking about me. It's fine. You, you key in on these things, man. Everyone looks at you and they say your name, even if you don't know what's being said. Um, and so then one of the people said that what he said was um, that they knew that God had my flight canceled so that I could say and preach the message that I preached uh, because the churches in that area needed to hear it and that many of them were moved deeply. You know, and God's just kind of like, bah, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, seriously, it's a punch in the gut when you do something so begrudgingly and you're so angry about why things don't happen the way you order them or in your mind did. And then God uses the, the people to say that. And, and <laughs> the reality is that, that God is greater 
than my family. He is. He's greater than my plans. He's greater than death. There are a lot of times driving in India, and if you've driven in India, you know this, especially on a mountain where I thought I was going to die. Uh, This is it. I'm not going to be martyred. I'm going to drive off the side of a cliff in a rickshaw. You know, like, (laughs) I'm going to just, my last words would be, tell them I was imprisoned. You know, like, I I didn't go out on a tricycle that's covered. Let's be real. It's not, it's not like the ideal book, you know, like, but, but God is greater even than that. And this prompts us to worship. Changes the way that we pray. Uh, this this is certainly an aside, um, but I think about Amanda Littlejohn and I think about Sarah's uh, friend Aaron um, that that passed away, and um, we mourn differently. Praying for peace is necessary. And for a family to do that is necessary, but to worship God. Uh, I think about Linda's funeral. And I don't, I don't know how many of you were able to be there. It's, it, but at the funeral, what we, it was a worship service. And we worshiped. And there were tears in worship. And it struck the emotions. And it was, it was all of those things. And yet in it, there was great comfort because we worshiped a God that's greater then all of these things, all of them, and when I preached on Joshua, that was the theme, is that, that, that the, the Jordan River uh, to the Canaanites was a sign of the strength of Baal, and it was at its strongest, and God parted the rivers, and his people walked through. And so to all of the people in Canaan, it was a tremendous sign that the God of the Israelites was more powerful than their God at its most powerful. And I said, the heart God is, is great. And I mean, it was uh, it, hallelujahs and amens and, and applause and, and singing. And, and then I got to preach again, you know. And I don't think we understand the magnitude of that statement, that our God is greater than all other gods. Our God is greater than all, uh, all other things because he created them and he holds them in the palm of his hands. He is greater. When you talk about ascribing worth, uh, look at how you live your lives, how you spend your money, what, what makes you get worried, what causes you to be anxious. And that tells us a lot about what we think is the, for, for my wife and I, and, and I'm going to bring her under this bus with me, it's money. It is. We get to, we get to halfway to, to three quarters through the month and we're looking at zero in our bank rapidly approaching and we're looking at also at, at our bill collectors rapidly approaching and not, you know what I mean, our bills becoming due and we're thinking, you know, how are we going to do this? We're going to have to tap into the savings again. I won't even go into that, you know. Um, and we get anxious and it causes us to fight. And, and part of that is because we think somehow that this money controls our situation um, and thus is, is more worthy of our anxiety than God. 
Our God is a great God, a king above all gods. That's the first reason why we ought to worship Yahweh. The second reason is also in there. It's implicit in it, and it is, it's this, uh, that every single one of us is a worshiper. It's not some of us worship because we're spiritual or religious, and some of us are not. You hear a lot of unbelievers saying that. It's become more and more popular, uh, even in the South now, but in, in the West. Uh, the real, I'm just not religious. Uh, I'm not superstitious. I'm not even spiritual. I don't believe in God, and thus I'm not a worshiper. Even the most, uh, even the, the, the most staunch atheist is a worshiper. Because if worship is assigning uh, worth to something and living according to that, an ultimate worship then would be assigning ultimate worship, uh, ultimate worth to something and living according to that. There's something that they worship. Um, <clears throat> that thing that you can't live without. Uh, or, or that thing as, as you look into, uh, as it were, the mirror that shows you what you desire most deeply. Uh, and, and, and reflects that to you, or that thing that appears in the mirror. Um, that's what you worship. And so here's the reality, is, is, is what the psalmist is saying is worship our God, Yahweh, the great God above all gods, because every other God is less. He's not worthy of worship, and he, it will disorient your life. When you worship money, it disorients, it, it, it's, it's, it disorients your life. It causes you to live uh, off of the, the, out of the norm, out of the, the norm for which you were created. When you worship lesser gods. It's not just that you're not worshiping gods, it's that the God, it's that you're worshiping false ones, and, and it's ridiculous. And, and I thought about a, a different psalm where God says, you know, why should the nations ask where where?" is your God. Our God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. And then it goes on to say that their God has eyes but can't see, ears but can't hear, mouth but can't speak, mind but can't perceive. And those who worship them become just like them. That's the pronouncement on the one who worships false gods. Is you become like what you worship. Stupid. There's no way around it. And so as, uh, as people who check Christian on, on, our, uh, on our boxes uh, whenever we have to give some sort of demographic, we need to ask ourselves, who do we really worship? Uh, how, how are we worshiping the one true God through Jesus? Or are we worshiping false gods? Are we worshiping ourselves? Are, are we not just stupid but also hypocrites? Uh, and there are a few worse things, I think, to be than a stupid hypocrite. Um, and, and, and that's just what Scripture lays out. They become dumb, is what Scripture says. And so we ought to worship God, and we ought to worship God also because he uh, has come down into our history and has interacted with us. He has made us his people. What the Bible says is in verse 7, we ought to worship God because for he is our God and we are the people of his pastures and the sheep of his hand. We're not just called to worship God because he created everything and he's great. We're called to worship God because he came down and he claimed us as his own. We remember his great love as well as his great sovereignty over all things. And as all these things come together, we worship. 
And so then we, we're left with, with the question, what does worship look like? How, how, how do we worship? And there are three different aspects to this, and we've, we've touched on them, and so we ought to hear this. Uh, the first is in the beginning, in the beginning of the text. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Worship is meant to be spiritual. It's meant to be emotional. And I know that, that when we get into uh, less charismatic, more more Protestant in the fullest sense, more Reformed in the fullest sense, which I am, for those of you who haven't figured it out yet, I'm Reformed, you know, but as you become more and more Reformed, you tend to be less and less emotional in your worship, and and you tend to, to even look down on those who are emotional in their worship, but here, this is make a joyful noise. As you read the Psalms, what you hear is, clap your hands, all you people, shout unto God with the voice of praise, Uh, lift your hands, dance, this, these are emotional things, these are outbursts of emotion, you are so taken up with the great value of God, that you cannot help but sing and shout, And, and, and it's like a football game, when there's one second left and your team scores a touchdown, you can't help it. doesn't matter how reserved you are. You jump out of your seat. You're fist pumping. You're slapping fives. You're doing whatever, chest pumping. I don't, whatever it is you do, uh, or, or even if you're a little more dignified, you'll, you'll clap. But inside, you are certainly uh, jumping around for joy. Uh, and, and this is the, the type of ecstatic worship that, that Scripture commands. And you don't get a pass because your theology is good. We worship <clears throat> with our emotions. We also worship with our actions. Uh, if you look in the next one, it says, come, let us worship and bow down. That, that bowing down is, is an action. You, 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 your volition, your will decides to worship. You worship daily through the choices that you make, what websites you browse, how you spend your money, what you do with that woman or that man who is not your spouse, how you respond to your parents when they tell you to do something. All of these things are worship. If you are in college, how you relate to your boyfriend or girlfriend, how you relate to your teachers and the administration that has been placed in authority above you, all of these things show uh, what worth and value you assign to God, and they are, um, they are a part of worship. We worship with our emotions, we worship with our actions, and then we worship with our reasoning, with our minds. Uh, the, the psalmist then goes on to say, today if you hear my voice, ration well. Don't be foolish like those who were in the wilderness who didn't believe me and I swore that they would not enter my rest, but instead hear my voice and obey it. There's a rationing that is happening. All of these things are part of worship. It's not worship only if you're reasoning through it, but your actions aren't changed and your heart isn't changed. Likewise, it's not worship if it's all heart and dancing and, and, and shouting and there's no thought and there's no change of action. And it's not worship if you do all the things you think you're supposed to do, but your heart and mind have not conformed to and submitted to the sovereignty and the lordship of Jesus Christ. We see all of those in America. I don't even have to say which denomination. You all are thinking it. (laughs) 
you know which church does what. And the point is that we're all called to do all of them. That's worship. So finally, finally, and the finally is four things, but what do we need for proper worship? I'm not going to go into great, great detail on these. But there are four things in this text that we see that we need for proper worship. The first is community. And this one should be obvious to, the, to us in the text, but it's probably not. Uh, we need community. Uh, we know this because the whole text is not written to you. It's written in the plural. It's not first person singular. Come let me worship and bow down. It's come let us. He is speaking to the congregation. This worship is communal. It is community. You, we, we have to get beyond this, uh, this very American, very Western, post-enlightenment understanding that it is private, personal salvation and private, personal worship. Look, there's individual and personal salvation. He is your Lord and Savior. However, he is the Lord and Savior of the church. In fact, Tim Keller said that, that he, he, he said that the, the primary goal of individual worship is to prepare us for corporate worship. It's to prepare us for corporate worship. There's so many levels on which that's amazing. It really is. Because eternity is corporate worship. We're not going to have our private prayer rooms in eternity. It's corporate worship that we're being prepared for. Uh, secondly, we can't worship God in fully without other people. Uh, C.S. Lewis kind of hinted at this. Uh, he talked about uh, how when he grew up, he was growing up, he had two very good friends. Uh, and one of those friends, tragically, when, when they were young, died. And he said that he thought that his relationship with his other friend would become deeper because it was just the two of them. And he found that it was not the case. It actually became worse. And what he found is that there was something about the other person that brought out characteristics in both of them that didn't come out except that their other friend was alive. There was a dynamic that they did not... I understand my wife much better now that we have kids than I did before. And the reality is that there are aspects of God that we see in our community that we would not see if we tried to worship God in our rooms by ourselves with just our Bible. We need community. Preferably, we need smaller groups that meet and pray and study the Word together, that we meet maybe even in people's homes. We could call them home groups. And then also, we need the larger corporate setting where we hear the Word preached and sing and take communion, and we are part of the greater body in that sense. We need community to worship God. Secondly, we need spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that's seen as we look and say, it says in verse 2, let us come into his presence. Um, and we are called to enter into the presence of God. And, and the question would be, how do we do that if God's presence is everywhere? How do we come into his presence? And I'll give you the short answer. It's by the Holy Spirit. We enter into the presence of the Spirit of God. And let me tell you, um, it's not something that I'm always looking for, but there were times in India, in those churches where we were sitting together praying and singing and I felt the Spirit of God move. Tangibly. 
And there's no other way I know how to explain it, except for that this was not a wind caused by a breeze, but that it was the Spirit of God moving in that group of people and in our midst. And so as we come, we pray that God would meet us here. And when we say that, we mean the Spirit. We pray that the Spirit, even though He is always in us, we enter into His presence. Come, let us enter into the presence of God. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. And the only way we can do that is with the Spirit. And then we need truth. And if you look at everything that David is saying, that the psalmist is saying, it's rooted in the truth of Scripture, the truth of creation, the truth of the history of Israel. Not only that, it turns out that the truth and spirit, the word and spirit, we've said this a lot, word and spirit are intrinsically united. The spirit moves through the truth of the word. The word moves by the power of the spirit. So much so that the, the, the author to the Hebrews, when quoting this text, doesn't say as the psalmist says or as David says, but rather says as the Holy Spirit says. And the last thing we need is faith. And I really struggled with whether, the, whether to call this faith or to call it Sabbath rest, true Sabbath rest. But this last part, and I wish I had more time to go into it. This last part is very confusing. We have a joyful song about entering to the presence of the Lord and singing and shouting for joy. And then we have, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts with the end result that God will become angry with you like he did with his people in the wilderness and swear in his wrath, you shall not enter my rest. And what we see again in Hebrews as he quotes this is that rest is not the promised land because the author of this psalm is writing in the promised land. The promised land only as it was a shadow of this rest, a foretaste of this rest. But this rest belongs to the Lord. This rest was the rest of, of Sabbath that we were created for. We were created for rest in God. This is not a rest from work. This is a rest from labor and from the curse. We were created to rest in God. And the only way that we enter into that rest is through faith in Jesus, our great Joshua, who parts the waters and ushers us in to his ultimate and eternal rest. And so in this call to worship, there is a call to belief. Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that Jesus has made a way for you to rest? Without faith, it is, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to worship him. And that's what we're called to be. It's true worshipers. Will you believe in Jesus? Will you believe the gospel this morning? Will you see the great worth of God and will you alter your life so that it properly corresponds to the great value of Yahweh? As I pray, uh, the elders, uh, if you would, please come up for communion. Father, thank you for your word, but, but I pray that your, your spirit would cause us not just to be hearers, but to be doers. 
not just to, to, to hear and, and to think about these things and to theorize about them, but rather to actually be worshipers. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that in him we can worship you. As we come to this table, God, may we remember, just as the psalmist prompts us to remember your great works and to worship and ascribe greatness to you. You alone are worthy, God. In Jesus' name, amen.